Um, so intuitively, that just once I once the, the idea popped in my mind of growing food on this space and the fact that my family home is right next to it, that just sounded like utopia, like how we are supposed to be living. Hey everybody, this is Amber Key, and you're listening to a Bright Idea podcast, a show that sits down with entrepreneurs to hear about the aha moment that launched their businesses. On this week's episode, we're joined by Doug Adams, the owner of New Brooklyn Farms. New Brooklyn Farms is an independently owned and operated urban farm in Event Green Space, located in a formerly vacant residential lot in the heart of the Washington, D.C. suburb, Mount Rainier, Maryland. Urban farms have grown in popularity over the last 10 to 15 years. Urban farming often makes use of vacant lots, rooftops, and abandoned or repurposed indoor spaces to grow crops such as fruits and vegetables. There's a number of positive social impacts associated with urban farming, including food insecurity, affordable food options, local employment, and educational opportunities. During his time off from his advertising career, Doug Adams made juices and smoothies made of natural ingredients. He sold his juices and smoothies at local farmers markets and to his co-workers, but he always wondered where his produce was coming from. Even though he was using organic ingredients, Doug was unsettled with the fact that his fruits and vegetables were coming from miles away. He thought, what if I could grow my own produce in my own garden? In 2016, during the height of the real estate investing and gentrification in the DMV, Doug was approached with an opportunity he just couldn't pass up. He bought a vacant lot next door to his parents' home. But instead of settling on building a home on the land with a garden in the backyard, Doug had other plans. He was going to build a farm. I'm born and raised in a town called Mount Rainier, Maryland, um, Prince George's County, Maryland, literally two blocks outside of the Washington, D.C. line, borderline. Um, so yeah, I was raised in a house with my family, um, on prevalent street, main street in Mount Rainier, um, grew up there, went to elementary school, middle, and then high school in PG County, graduated from Eleanor Roosevelt high school in 2004. And, um, after that, um, left for college where I attended Temple University in Philadelphia. Growing up, I had this dream of being in the music industry. Um, wanting to be involved in some way, shape, or form, um, I settled on pursuing a career as a sound engineer um, and slash music producer. So that dream took me more up north to the northeast, to larger cities um, with a better music scene. And my first stop was Philadelphia. So I graduated from Temple University in 2008, degree in communications, really didn't even want to go to college, but went because my parents kind of said, look, you can chase the, the dream, but you need to get a degree. So Temple had an awesome audio production uh, program, and uh, I graduated uh, with that specialty, with that focus. Then 2008, moved to New York City, and that kind of begun my journey as an adult. But um, but yeah, I'm, I'm PG County, born and bred, DMV all day. That's awesome. So growing up, like, how would your parents describe you? Were you like, did you have like an on? You said that you didn't really want to go to college at first, but your parents are like, you need a degree. Like, what were you sort of entrepreneurial your whole life, or like, what? How would how would your parents like describe you growing up? You, I think my parents would describe me as uh, hardworking. Definitely, you know, I've been I've had a job since I was twelve years old. First job was delivering a local newspaper called the Gazette. Um, you know, so I've always been about the bag, but, uh, you know, worked all the way through, uh, middle school, high school, I worked at Subway as a sandwich artist, you know? So, you know, I've always kept the job on the entrepreneurship. Um, not really. I just had the growing up from zero to 18, it was mostly about getting jobs. Um, the entrepreneur kind of wave and error didn't really kick off at that point. You had some kids selling candy um, and things like that, but 
this whole culture of entrepreneur entrepreneurism is not it wasn't really there. So I was just getting the best job I could as a teenager. So you said that you wanted to work in the music industry. Um, did you do that when you moved to New York after college? Yes, briefly I did. Um, so uh, when I moved to New York, uh, I had been interning with uh, Sony Music at one of their recording studios, was looking at getting a job in my field, if you will, like the thing, the very thing that I wanted to pursue after high school. I was, I was in line to pursue it right after college. But it was a recession and um, things didn't, things kind of fell apart in the music industry for a bit. But I worked, I'd say I worked at that studio called Battery Studios for about, maybe about a year. Um, and then they end up shutting down. So in 2008, things are changing. The recession was happening. It's hard to get a job for everybody. It, did you move back here? I, I want to pivot because it's interesting like your background it i you went to temple you were interested in the music industry um and then how did you end up thinking about agriculture or farming or any of that something that was key that happened was when that whole music industry dream kind of crumbled and died eventually um i pivoted into an adjacent industry which was advertising and marketing and i believe that is uh, that really was probably what got me on the entrepreneurial track was working for a small private company um, that was, you know, bootstrapped and became one of the largest lifestyle marketing firms um, in the country at that time. So, um, yeah, I'll say that pivoting into from music into media and marketing and advertising, um, that kind of just made me develop my creative mind. Um, and it also, it, the, the company operated an independent record label. So I wasn't too far. I, I also was doing work with that record label as well. So, you know, that whole experience for five years, um, you know, that kind of set me on this path of being a creative mind and then always being interested in, uh, you know, marketing and storytelling and working with brands and things like that. So, um, so yeah, I was like kind of like a, a music industry guy at night going to the different events and parties and stuff. But on the flip, I had a pretty square job as a bookkeeper or a staff accountant for this marketing company that was really cool. How did you discover the land for what would become New Brooklyn Farms? And, and where did you come up with the name? Okay, so um, this is after that first stint at this marketing company. I then went to another online media company. Many people would know Radio One. They have an online division um, called Interactive One at the time. So I worked there. Um, that was a uh, you know, Black-owned company, great experience. And around this time, I am kind of growing my relationship with wellness and healthy living. I had, I had been working out and interested in exercise and eating right since really high school uh, or like late high school. And, you know, just over the years, I learned more, read more, and personally decided that, hey, I would love to make money, you know, uh, or run a business in this space. Um, so in the, I think it was about 2010, I started being a vendor at a local town fair called Mount Rainier Day, which ran right in front of on the street, right in front of my house. And I started selling uh, juices and smoothies as a vendor. And, um, you know, just set up a table, was able to bring things from the house down the steps and it was super convenient. So, um, yeah, I sold smoothies and juices for maybe like six or seven years as a vendor. And... Towards the end of that, I kind of scaled that business into more. And this is, keep in mind, I'm living in New York and coming back home this weekend in May every year to be a vendor. Then towards the end, maybe like around 2014, 15, I started bottling the juices, doing it in New York and um, selling juice cleanses to coworkers and smoothies and stuff. So, you know, that was my first dabble in, in entrepreneur, you know, established an LLC 
you know, that was my first uh, step into entrepreneurship. Um, and uh, when you ask how did it all tie into the farming aspect, that was really what kicked it off. So I'm juicing, I'm learning about organic versus conventional, and I'm seeing firsthand the difference in shelf life and taste and quality. And I started to kind of say, hey, you know, I, if I'm going to be in business selling this stuff to other people, I wanted to be selling the highest quality product that I can. Right. So I started buying organic and seeing how expensive it was and how it really wasn't feasible to run the business like that. And I was just like, got interested in, in how food is grown in agriculture. No, I was going to say, I find that really interesting and just like you going through your background and going through corporate and working in marketing. And and I'm very familiar with Radio One. I, I have a lot of friends that work in that space and work for TV One. Um, so that's super dope. But it's, it's a rat race, especially working in advertising. I sold for a long time. So trying to get clients on and And so it it's interesting that you took the approach of wanting to learn about organic foods and putting healthy foods in, into your body. Um, do you think that that interest came from just working in the industry and being like always busy and wanting to really take care of your body? Or like, have you always kind of been like a, like a health geek, if you will, or. <laughs> yeah, that was me, to be honest with you. I'm that guy. And you know, this bringing his lunch a lot of days out of the week and, uh, Everyone's in the kitchen. I'm pulling out my salad. Like, oh, what you got there? Oh, that salad looks great. Like, yeah. I'm that guy. Yeah. It's, it's been in me for a while. <laughs> yeah. So did you always, did you always want to be a farmer? No, 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 not at all. So, all right, here's a connection there. So prior to the beginning of New Brooklyn Farms, the only kind of experience I had with farming was my grandparents. So my grandparents lived in Memphis, Tennessee when I was growing up and had a country house in uh, Senatobia, Mississippi. So uh, we would travel there. I was like 40 minutes outside of Memphis. We would travel there when I was there for the summers and they would have chickens. Then they would have fruit trees, you know, peaches and grow strawberries and stuff like that. So it was more like gardening, if you will. You know, down there, farming is a culture. Everyone does. Everyone has land. So that was it. I didn't. I never got my hands dirty. I just knew, like, oh, like grandma just picked these peaches off of a tree. Um, we eat chicken eggs or eggs from the chicken that she owns. You know, or raises. So that was it. Um, no, no connection to agriculture and no uh, foundational knowledge really. Um, but so the. As I went on the juice journey, though, I did start to learn about, you know, what that we import in this country, most of our fruits and vegetables or a lot of our fruits and vegetables and learning that um, local is, you know, is superior because outside of organic or conventional food is traveling from thousands and thousands of miles away like that just didn't fundamentally sit right with me. So. So. Um, New Brooklyn Farms sits not too far from where you grew up, correct? So how far from like your childhood home uh, is New Brooklyn Farms? Next door, literally the next <laughs> So we have house number one, which is our family home. Adjacent to it, to the left is a vacant lot that when we moved into the house in the early 90s, used to be kind of a condemned boarded up house and really like a drug house at the time um, that was demolished in the nineties, but then sat vacant after they demolished it. So, um, so yeah, that's where New Brooklyn Farms is located on a uh, quarter acre residential lot that sits right next to my mom's house where I grew up and also space where I grew up playing football, just hanging out. Um, having to clean up beer bottles and, you know, notice weird people hanging out and stuff sometimes. So yeah, and that's where New Brooklyn Farms is next to mom's house. So tell me about how you thought of the idea to to buy this this land that had been condemned for so long. Uh, like, 
how did you yeah, come so up with that idea to purchase it? It's not vacant, but and underused and blighted, but it was always, it changed hands and ownership over the years a few times. And the most recent owner prior to me uh, purchasing uh, was an older gentleman who reached out to my parents. Um, he was looking to get rid of this lot and liquidate some of his real estate. And he asked my parents, were they interested? This is in 2015, late 2015. So my parents weren't in a position to buy it. Um, and uh, they kind of just asked me, or they mentioned to me that he had offered. And I just was really, I was really interested. I thought it was a really cool opportunity um, to own next to where we already owned. Um, I believed in the potential at the area, good location, great proximity to DC. And um, at that time, everyone was getting bitten by that real estate bug, like real estate started becoming mainstream and buying back the block and all this stuff. So it, it just seemed right. And um, I was in a position where I had some money saved, um, you know, particularly my 401k uh, for the years that I had worked up to then. So pretty much broke the piggy bank, cashed out the 401k and um, used some of that money plus, you know, what I had as a down payment, um, you know, for to, to buy the land from the guy who owned it next door. Did you have any real estate experience prior to purchasing this land? None. This, the zero. This was an, to be clear though, this is a very unique situation. Yeah. Finance and everything. So I didn't know anything about, all I knew was that I should go out and try to get a mortgage because I don't have all the money to pay him at one time. I didn't have that much saved. Um, and I was trying to figure out how I get this thing financed. So for about a year, I went out and looked for mortgages to, you know, to purchase, to pretty much put a down payment with a bank, lock in on the interest rate and pay a bank and they pay him, um, which is how most real estate residentially works. So what I learned in that process was I was getting no after no after no commercial banks, banks, uh, credit unions all said no, because it's very difficult to finance or secure financing for vacant land um, in that. Banks look at it as extremely high risk because if you default on your payments, there's nothing there for them to seize in a meaningful way, like a house or a building. So um, vacant land is typically really tough to finance. You got to come with cash is what I learned. So I go back to the owner and after literally almost a year of searching for someone to finance, they couldn't find it. I'm like, hey, I want to do the deal, but I can't find financing. Do you have any ideas? And he comes back and offers to uh, self-finance the deal. So this is a concept in real estate is really called seller financing, um, where essentially he allowed me to give him the down payment directly. We negotiated an agreement, kind of like similar, like a lease to own agreement. Right. We agreed on his price, interest rate, um, monthly payments, the whole nine. He just pretty much asked for my credit report. And he agreed to take the down payment and let me pay him in those monthly installments plus interest. So that's how the deal came together. Um, it, again, it took about a year. It was like a year from us beginning the conversation to us locking in. And I think it was like October of 2016, um, you know, I gave him the down payment and um, that, that space was mine. So. so do you think that the hesitancy from the bank was because, I mean, was your initial plan to buy this land and to build a home on it? Or was your, it was, was it always to have a farm? No, just, it was just, um, buy and hold. Um, you know, I was told, Hey, you should build a house on this space. Like, what are you going to do with it? And you got to build something to make it worth your investment and your while. So I, I just didn't have an interest in that. Number one, yeah. financially, I had already come out of pocket so crazy uh, <laughs> that uh, I wasn't, I, I just couldn't wrap my head around the next lift of going out and finding financing to build and construct. So that was part of it. But then I just wasn't really interested in building. Like I just wanted to hold it and just see how things, how the area came up. And, um, you know, I was comfortable with the monthly payment and that was it. So, um, but the farm piece came in um, when I was like, mm-hmm. I now have this 
monthly payment. I'm not getting any return off of it. Um, but I have this beautiful space next to my mom's house. We have access to water, power. What can I do with this space that will be positive and productive in the meantime and maybe could become a profitable business? And that's where my mind kind of connected the dots with the whole juicing experience and really becoming more of a kind of store of local and organic produce. And I'm like, what if I could just start growing right here? That would be amazing. And that at that point, that was when I put it all together and came up with the uh, urban farm concept. Pivoting to, okay, you have this, you have this, um, this farm, you're, you've decided you're not going to build a house. You're going to build a farm. You're going to grow organic fruits and vegetables. Did you have any prior knowledge to how to grow crops prior? <laughs> and so like, take us through those initial stages of like, okay, you buy this, you buy this land, you want to grow a farm on it. You break ground. Like for somebody that just has this like hype dream of owning a farm one day, like take us through that experience. Yeah, definitely. Um, so intuitively that just, once I, once the, the idea popped in my mind of growing food on this space and the fact that my family home is right next to it. That just sounded like utopia, like how we are supposed to be living. And this is without me doing any research, getting inspired by anything online or anything. Like, I'm just like, that would be really dope if we could just, it's, it's dinner time, we need salad. Let's go over next door to the farm and grab some salad. And come. like, that just sounded dope to me. Yeah. So it started there and then more of a, you know, in a more technical way, I had to really research what it all looked like. Is this, what about the weather? Is there a reason why we don't see this in this region being done? Like do people even grow food in urban areas? And that's how I got introduced to the concept of an urban farm, which was well-established even back then. Um, spoke to some folks locally who was in that space, urban farms and urban gardens and stuff like that. So I had a bunch of conversations and I validated that the concept was established and I could do it there. It was unstoppably. Um, so, so yeah, but you know, the thing is, is that, and we'll probably talk about this later is that it's not as easy as just, you know, just say, oh, I have space and it just has grass on it and I can just automatically grow food here. There's a process of building a space out and dealing with soil and things like that to get to a point where you can grow. But I knew it was possible in this space. Yeah. So who, I guess that's what I really want to know is, is the process. And also who did you kind of have in your corner to help educate you on how to make this stream possible? Yeah. All right. So there's two main places, two main resources um, as far as people. Number one was a guy named Ronnie Webb. Shout out to Ronnie. He had a conversation with me, I believe, like right as I was signing the deal for the land. Um, and um, he operates he, a nonprofit company called uh, The Green Scheme and based in D.C. And they, you know, do a lot of programming, partner with schools around urban gardens and community gardens and, um, you know, teaching, the teaching side of that and uh, youth engagement. So he and I met up um, for a meal. We talked. He told me about all the potential ways that I could, you know, get grants and um, the need for it in our in our area. So he gave me a lot of inspiration in person. He's probably the first person I talked to in person. Then um, meeting up with uh, or, or understanding that the USDA it was going to be a key partner as far as getting funding and resources. Um, so I was directed to the Prince George's County Soil Conservation District. So there's, these are, there are these districts set up in every county in this country that are partially funded by the USDA. And um, their role is to support farmers in uh, stewarding, uh, you know, environmentally conscious soil practices and land stewardship. So a woman named Kim Rush Lynch was the urban ag planner there. To this day, she's still one of my biggest supporters and um, you know, just my rock in this whole project. So yeah, she kind of helped me register my farm, get a farm number, register with the USDA, um, be able to apply for certain grants from the USDA, 
one of which I was awarded for a greenhouse. Um, so yeah, those are the two big resources as far as people that I connected with early. And I will say this too, is that the third big piece is volunteering. I literally volunteered for probably, it was well over a year. I, I went into a second season. So I just understood that I had no hands-on experience with it. This stuff is all like, if you don't know anything about farming or soil, mm. it's very technical. Um, I felt like volunteering was the right way for me to learn. So I volunteered with uh, University of uh, District of Columbia, UDC. They have a, a research farm in Bellsville, Maryland that I volunteered at for about a couple of seasons. Mm -hmm. Met a lot of folks there. Um, and, uh, and yeah, like, you know, other places, some places in New York, there was um, a couple urban farms in New York and different community days and volunteer days that I would go to and just ask questions and get my hands dirty, so. Oh, so the new Brooklyn Farms has, has started. Uh, what sort of like initiatives and programs do you have at the farm um, that kind of like brings funding for you? Definitely. So um, I mentioned the USDA grant. So um, they offer a grant called the Equip grant that is solely for uh, it's support the purchase of a high tunnel greenhouse. So, um, you know, I was awarded that grant and that was a, a source of funding, if you will. But other than that, it was my business model. So my business model was twofold. Uh, it was for the space to serve as both a urban farm where I would primarily grow crops on a contract basis for local businesses, uh, just to kind of streamline the whole idea of being a market farmer, which is like you can go to farmer's markets and you sell in hand to hand to different individuals. I realized that as someone with a nine to five and still living in New York, um, I needed for whatever I was growing in you know, as far as commercially to be streamlined. So I'm like, let me get a contract with a local business and grow one crop, one specialty crop really well. Um, master that and that's getting, try to secure as many of those as I can. That's what I did. Um, so that was on the production side, but then I also realized that the space was really intimate, had an intimate feel, great location, as I mentioned before, and could be rented out for events. Mm -hmm. So that other revenue stream that I kind of built up was, um, branding the space as green event space and, um, hosting like-minded types of events. So yoga was one of the early things that I did. I think probably the first event I ever did there was a yoga, a yoga class, um, partnered with a local yoga studio for that. And, um, you know, over the years it's more like music, R and B, did a lot of wellness, meditation circles, um, you know, obviously farm tours and visits and things like that. So yeah, those two revenue streams. You talked about, um, growing a crop, a very specialty crop. What, what is the crop that you're growing? Oh yeah. So, uh, there's a, a special variety of thyme called lemon thyme. It has like okay. any kind of zest to it. Um, there's a local, uh, business, a meadery, if anyone knows who meat is, meat is, um, fermented honey to the point where it becomes alcoholic, um, almost like a sweet craft beer almost. So guy, I, Ken Carter was opening, um, Maryland Mead Works a mile up the street from where I was located. And I forget how I even met him, but it just clicked like brewery he's using, he's sourcing local honey, local cherries. Like, let me ask this guy if I can grow something for him at the farm. And he was my first customer. So shout out to Ken Carter. I was growing probably at least 10 pounds of lemon time for him for uh, several seasons. Um, so, and it was, he was using that to brew it, his signature, uh, variety of mead. Do you have other clients that use your lemon time or do you have other business owners that use your land or your, yeah, your land to grow their own crops for their own businesses? Yeah. Yeah. So I had a few other clients. Um, I did some work for a local restaurant, did some greens for this restaurant. It's no longer in Mount Rainier, but it was across the street from me. Um, and another uh, distiller called Sangfraud Distilling in Highsville, Maryland. 
um, there's some rosemary and things for now. But over the years, it's been like a handful of different clients. Um, it didn't scale up too crazy, um, but uh, it was some really meaningful partnerships and products that I supported that I'm proud of. But then you asked about, are is anyone else growing crops for businesses in the space? So I also decided to operate to, to stand up a farmer residence program. So um, what that consists of is out of a need for, again, me being a nine to five guy, not living in Mount Rainier at the time, um, you know, I needed to make this driven and supported by community partnerships. So the Gardner Residence Program or Farmer Residence Program rather uh, was basically me offering a portion of the space that I had to a local food entrepreneur or entrepreneur in general who had a need for locally grown um, props or produce and needed space to grow. So I offered the space for free in exchange for cross promotion um, and just built community in, in a major way um, by way of this, this, um, this program. Um, to this day, I still have a farmer residence this season, have had one every season. And my first one was a woman named Stephanie Freeman who had a uh, pepper sauce line and specialty market business called Relish Market. Um, so there yeah, for a couple seasons, brought some really awesome tomatoes and peppers that she not only made pepper sauces with, but also would go and vend them at different markets around the DMV. So that was a great partnership as my first one. Uh, Steph Freeman is the farmer residence. You've mentioned a few revenue streams uh, for New Brooklyn Farms. I'm curious how lucrative is owning uh, an urban farm? Or how lucrative has it been for you? Yeah, so that that's a great question. Um, I think it's easy for me to say this because I own the land and I was it's a very unique and fortunate situation for me to own the land. But most urban farms do not, they operate on land that they, they do not own, especially in an urban environment because land is so much more expensive than rural. Um, so to me, um, I will say that as far as the, the appreciation and the value of the real estate, um, it has been lucrative. Um, Mount Rainier has changed, you know, gentrification has happened, the people getting pushed out of DC, that's all happened. And um, the, the value of the land has increased tremendously since I purchased. But I think that that is more, that's more equity. That's not like cash money flowing through, like, unless I was to sell. Mm. So, um, but now to talk about the cash flowing side of the business, it's basically, it's, it's anchored by the real estate investor. That's what I was always confident in. Like this thing could go belly up, but at the end of the day, I own the land and it's appreciating and they're not making any more of this. Mm. So, but now pivoting over to the operation of the urban farm and how profitable that was, it's not very profitable, it's tough to make money. And that's really across the board. Um, I had a vision in my mind, like the things that I mentioned, growing the specialty crops for businesses and then running it out for events. Yeah, money was coming in, but always lose. I was always losing money at the end of the year. Mm -hmm. um, but I'll say that what I believed in early on was coming from marketing was in my mind, one day I'm going to convince some big brand to come in and make a large strategic investment and be a brand partner in this with me. I still believe this can happen. I haven't pulled it off yet, but uh, yeah, that, that is, that to me is the true exit strategy, if you will, for up leveling, um, you know, or creating a sustainable business model. Um, I was going to, I bootstrapped it. I continue to bootstrap it now, but, um, but yeah, I believed in, you know, I had seen the company I worked for partner with Converse, the shoe company, to build out a recording studio in Brooklyn that was branded, you know, and uh, served as an event space and a recording studio. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Every artist that came through got a pair of Converse. You know, you got that kind of, uh, you know, experiential marketing going on. So I envisioned that as like my final blueprint. No, I love that. For our listeners, um, there's listeners of all backgrounds that are listening to this. So people who are interested in owning a farm, people who are 
you know, interested in starting a business. But I think it's really important to mention that Black farmers only make up 1% of farmers in the U.S. today. And this is according to the United States Department of Agriculture. And so we've seen sort of, I mean, a lot of the reasons that there's only 1% of Black farmers in the U.S. is due to systemic racism, biased government policy, inequitable social and business practices. So I think we're starting to see a resurgence in Black farmers, particularly urban farmers, which I think is so cool. Um, and I'm just curious if you faced any barriers or what did you go through um, in order to buy and sustain your land? Yeah, so the biggest barrier that I faced was um, it really pertaining to um, land use and permitting and really legality of, of operating my farm. Um, in the location I was, I'm in. So what happened being more specific was, um, I went to go through the permitting process once I was awarded this USDA grant to build a greenhouse. I want to make sure I was doing it right, following the rules, checking in with my city and the county. So I wanted to apply for a building permit. And because what I was doing was so unprecedented with not really any rules or guidance around it or previous cases, um, I was initially told by um, the county permitting department that I was not allowed to build the hoop house or the greenhouse. Um, and then also that I really wasn't permitted to be operating an urban farm where I was located either. Now, Prince George's County was known for being a very pro-urban farming friendly County, um, there was a lot of legislation that had passed in previous years to encourage it and grow it. I think it was like 60% of the county at that time, you were able to use land, any land for, you know, that use. But I was told a different story and it was kind of a big shakeup because I'm like, I was awarded this grant money. I have a timeline that I have to use it by. And now, and I got the support of the PG County Soil Conservation District and the USDA, what's the problem? So I had to go back, circle back to, um, you know, Prince George's County Soil Conservation District, like, hey, like, is this correct? County planning, double checked all the zoning rules. And indeed there was a special set of zoning rules that applied specifically to the corridor, the Route 1 corridor where my land was located. Um, and it's really an arts, it was, it was made into an arts district. Like in years prior, and because of that status as the Arts District Corridor, um, there was a special set of overlay rules that you know had implications on what you could or couldn't do along that strip. So I was kind of just caught in the crosshairs of being of a special set of rules that wasn't intended to prevent urban farming, but just happened to. And um, this became a kind of a legislative battle that I fought for almost two years, um, trying to get clearance to build this greenhouse. So I ended up just reaching out to different, you know, the, the mayor of Mount Rainier, council members. I started an online petition, um, pretty much just getting support for, hey, you know, we want to see this guy continue with his project, his positive XYZ. I went and spoke on different forums and um, got some local press and two years later connected with the uh, the council the council person Denny Tavares for my my zone of the county and she supported two bills one that um pretty much was a resolution for those overlay those special rules that was preventing me from operating there was a bill that addressed that and then she was the pro urban farming person at the county level who had done things prior so she also used the opportunity to present another bill that further expanded, you know, P I'm sorry, uh, urban farming in PG County from 60% to 80% of the land in PG County you could use for urban farming. So I kind of consulted on that bill um, alongside, of course, the one that was more designed to help me and both passed at the end of, I think it was 2019 um, after a long battle. So um, that was the biggest that was the biggest challenge I faced because it was it uh, it threatened the existence of, um, you know, my my doing what I was doing in the space. So. Were 
was the zoning that you were facing, uh, the laws that were that were in place, what did it have anything to do with the racism or was it that the land, the zoning of the land was was for something else prior? Yeah, yeah. It it, it was this this wasn't racial. This was okay legislative. Um as far as any racial hurdles that I may have faced, um, I would say more likely than not, in my I was I explored a lot of USDA uh grant programs and farm acquisition loans and things like that. Um and the USDA has a documented track record that they actually are working to rectify as we speak on discriminatory practices toward, you know, black farmers who apply for, you know, funding, grants, financing, and are treated unfairly. Um, may is it possible that in my attempts to explore those avenues, we did I experience discrimination? Things didn't work out. Very, very possible. But at the same time, the premise and the situation of, you know, the existence of me buying my own land and self-funding it, I was kind of insulated from needing them. Yeah. I didn't move so slow. So, you know, I kind of was playing at my own pace, but I did explore and it's very, the process of engaging and just doing your due diligence with the USDA is notoriously very tough for the regular person. So. Yeah, it sounds like from just your you sharing your story that your barriers came in like not knowing the exact laws and legislation, not knowing the barriers in which to uh, for zoning and purchasing land. But I think that for some people, knowing the history of the fact that there aren't very many black farmers because of systemic uh, racism, I think that some people may be discouraged to even go down the path of purchasing a land to start a farm because they think that they're going to run into these racial issues. What do you, what would you say to people who have the same dream as you? Um, Like, I guess, what advice would you give them to just keep, to keep going forward? Yeah. I know it's easier said than done, but, and I'm coming from a place of privilege is my first stab at, you know, owning a business that requires a physical space was came on the back of me buying the space. But my advice is that ownership of your space or wherever you operate is really powerful. Um, I would say that if you cannot, as a, as a new entrepreneur, whether you have a storefront, whether you're trying to farm, um, you know, it's best to be on the complete opposite end of the spectrum, in my opinion, where like, Maybe you start off using public space or um, negotiate a deal with a, a church. Well, most times they own their land and try to farm there. A lot of urban farmers do that. Um, there are, depending on what city you're located in, there's, um, you know, public incentives to, you know, use green space for urban farming at a low to no cost. So I would say if you can't own, leverage public resources or kind of bartering, but to go out and straight up enter in a lease agreement, if you are looking to farm, or even if you're looking to do a storefront, there's just a lot of options where you can err more towards the side of limited liability. If you got a storefront, pop-ups are a big thing. I would get myself hot on the pop-up circuit before even thinking about leasing. So that's just I kind of learned, but again, I sit in a special spot because it just was happenstance that I, I was able to own where I was. I think it's also important to mention that like one of the things that I, I keep hearing you say is it, it sounds like you read a lot and you know your laws. And I think it's important to mention that people need to like know the laws and know the loopholes. Um, I think there there's definitely, there could be a huge knowledge gap in that and you can get caught up if you don't don't know like what can and can't uh work for you and so um i think that's something that you really took into your hands when you uh bought this land definitely definitely um as far as one uh one business in the dmv that in my opinion kind of parallels 
the way I went about starting and managing my space is um is the spice suite. So I'm sure you maybe you Yeah. Yeah, of course. Yeah, so she just opened this commercial kind of strip mall that she owns in DC. But prior to that, she operated in a uh, I believe it was a leased space in downtown DC somewhere, a storefront. And she went into it. I think as the story as she tells is she was a teacher and she just took, she saw for a lease sign and she just went in and leased the space and said, I'm going to figure this out and leveraged, you know, the farmer and residence equivalent. She had, she hosted female entrepreneurs there on a weekly basis and gave them free space and built community that way. Um, I would say that look to Angel Gregorio as another example of how you can creatively make these things work as far as, and I believe for this space that she just got, she used um, a, a DC grant in part to finance the acquisition of her land that she's on now. So yeah, that's just, you know, it always helps to have a, you know, a relatable example and she's done it way bigger and better than I have, but look to her story is real powerful. You're the second person who has mentioned Angel Gregoria on the show. Um, the Undie Wash actually is one of the, she's the, one of the Spice Girls, original Spice Girls, or Angel calls them. Um, and she runs her business out of Angel's um, uh, facility as well. So I think that that's a great shout out. Um, I want to pivot though, because your farm is located in Mount Rainier, Maryland. For those who don't know, Mount Rainier is a Washington, D.C. suburb, but it's not rural. It's kind of, it, it's like residential, but it, you're close enough to the city that you, it's very urban. So how do you think urban farming is helping the community? Um, so there's a few things here. Um, number one is uh, beautification for sure. Um, you know, just walking past my lot versus what it was in 2001 when I was in high school and stuff. And versus now when we have a greenhouse and we have plants and we have fruit trees and things like that, like visually it's uplifting and, um, it just attracts a different crowd, you know, when things are just, when spaces are blighted and just trashy and unkempt, like it's going to attract riffraff. But what I found is with no fence, no gate around my space, just you know, feeding back off of the energy from the community. I haven't had any incidents. Um, it's you, sometimes folks will come up there and it used to be, like I said, in the early 2000s, people would come there and drink beers and smoke and stuff. Now, some people just come and sit down. I have a little free library who come down, sit down, grab a book. Some people might just sit, walk around, look around and, you know, not be into any riffraff. So beautification, um, providing an escape from the hustle and bustle of DC, the bus terminal down the block. And then also it, um, it definitely in the long term is increasing property values as well, because now we're reducing crime. Um, we're doing things, you know, it's, it's just, if someone comes to look at the house next door, it's like, Oh, someone's growing fruits and vegetables next door. Like, so it's economic, there's an economic uh, benefit there as well. So, yeah. So, this is sort of a personal question, but I want to get your take on this. So when I speak with a lot of Black people about farming or nature or agriculture in general, it's not always taken well. Like I've heard, I, I think I was talking, I want to own a farm one day. Not a farm, but I want to, I want chickens, like really badly. <laughs> and so I like was talking to friends about this at one time and they were like, it's giving plantation. Like Black people don't farm. And I was like, I... I don't know. That's a very, it's a very unsettling thing for me to hear. And I think a lot of it has to do with like generational trauma and just like not trying to relive the past. But I want to know in your opinion on why we as black people should be more open to the benefits of farming and learning how to grow our own. Yeah. Well, I'll say number one is, uh, the health benefits alone. If you grow food, uh, or you're a farmer nine times out of 10, you're going to have access and be eating this locally grown, likely organic food that you're producing. So that alone to me, you know, just the ability to up, the up level your health with more nutrient rich, 
um, you know, fresh produce. That's, that's a huge benefit. Um, and then we, you know, as African-Americans, we have, you know, all these health disparities and things like that. So we need it more than a lot of other groups. Um, and then it's, I understand what, what people might say along the whole given plantation kind of narrative, but it's almost like a redemption. Like instead of us being enslaved and doing this, we are doing this now on our, on our own terms and building businesses. And, um, you know, it's almost, it's really just, it's, it's revolutionary. If you ask me, um, you know, to be doing it in it from, a, from a place of empowerment and not enslavement. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's in our blood till we got the skill set. our ancestors, a lot of things that was built in this country was on the back of us producing these commodities for slave owners like cotton and everything else. So for us to take back the power is, is awesome to me. I think we can like end the episode on that note. I think that was such a powerful statement. Thank you so much. How, if people are like interested in maybe not owning a farm, but they want to get involved in what you have to offer and volunteer, how can they, they find you? So I'm, uh, at new Brooklyn farm or socials, um, newbrooklynfarms.com um uh, my email is grow at newbrooklynfarms.com get in touch with me um you know uh feel free to reach out um i'm a big believer in helping any and everyone who comes to me with a question um looking for guidance um you know references whatever you may have i have a big network in this space reach out to me um, lock in with me on social media and, um, yeah, some exciting updates that I'll be, uh, you know, announcing in the near future as far as some new directions and, and initiatives, but, but yeah, just lock in with me on those, on those channels or reach out. All right. Let's play a game for our last few minutes of the show. It's like, we have some fun. Um, I'm going to do a rapid fire with you real quick. So give me your answer off the top of your head. Um, what's the easiest crop to grow? Lettuce. <laughs> what have you found is the hardest? Mm. The hardest is probably, I'm going to say flowers. The few flowers that I've attempted to grow, um, can be really finicky um, with the weather and things like that. Sense of the frost or flowers, right? Toughest in my experience. Um, with your with your farm being here in DC regionally, and also DC being like kind of swampy, it's really humid here. Is it hard? Do you find it challenging to grow? Like, what's the easiest thing? Is you said lettuce is the easiest thing to grow, but are flowers hard to grow because of our uh, the climate here? Oh, uh, the, the, the challenge is like in recent years, we've had this tremendous, like climate change and unpredictability in the season. So like, you know, we had my first season, I was, it got, it was rainy until like June mm -hmm. and, and then now we're getting freezes going into like late April and May and stuff like that. So, um, I think that that's the biggest challenge. I was, it's less about regionality. It's more about climate change. Okay. Okay. Um, okay. So your background is in, in music. <laughs> is it true that if you play music for your plants, it will help them grow? Do you play music for your plant plants? My plants have consumed a lot of live music by way of the events that I'm hosting. Okay. But do I sit down and put a pair of AirPods on a Plant? No, I'm not doing that. Absolutely not. I was thinking more so like, you know, plant on a I mean, I personally believe that plants can't consume those vibes from music, for sure. Awesome. Um, do you own any animals on your farm? No animals. No animals yet. Um, maybe in the near future, I might do chickens um, one day. But that's going to be it. I'm working with a really small space and it's more complicated to do that. Close where I am being like in the heart of Mount Rainier. 
Yeah. So that was actually my next question, but I think I kind of answered my own question because Mount Rainier is considered Maryland, right? So DC is it? I don't think you can have chickens in DC, right? Do you know that? As a future chicken farmer, I need to know. It technically, in in Prince George's County right now, like chickens are not allowed. Oh, okay. We'll have them though, but it's kind of like speakeasy kind of thing, and a lot of want them to be allowed. And were asking me to include, try to push for that when I was doing all my legislative stuff. But, but yeah, DC, I'm not sure to be honest with you. I have to check on where things stand today. But there's a number of people that I know in DC who raise chickens as well. I'm not sure if they're doing it in that gray area or not. It's it's definitely a lot of people in the DMV who in urban areas that are raising chickens for sure. What is the greatest advice anyone's ever given you? Hmm. Um, I would say if you love what you do, you never work a day in your life. I believe that's really true. Um, I think that everyone should try to create that situation for yourself. Um, I'm, I'm still trying to this day, even though I love the farm and I love what I do. I'm trying to make it even more chill, not like work every day. <laughs> What keeps you up at night? Mm, ideas. I got a lot of, I got a lot of what I believe are great ideas and um, just trying to figure out how to align myself with the folks that can help me execute. That's what keeps me up at night. Are you a journaler or do you keep your ideas in your head or how do you usually get your ideas out? No journaling. It's all up here. It's off the top. No pen, no pad like Jay-Z. <laughs> no, I love that. And lastly, what's next for New Brooklyn Farms? Yeah, so we're going to continue to rock. Um, like I said, I'm not going anywhere. You know, um, I could, you know, I'm, I'm very grateful to be able to say that. Um, we're going to continue to, uh, you know, host events and uh, really be a community hub and resource for all things agriculture, both urban and rural. Um, until you try to tell my story on platforms like yours, grateful for this and inspire others to either go out and get land or really reclaim land. Maybe your backyard, maybe your, your churches, the space behind the church as you go to whatever, just think outside the box as far as getting creative about where you can grow and produce food. Um, Cannabis just went legal recreationally in Maryland on July 1st. So looking into how um, I can maybe make a play in that space. Um, no, I'm not going to be growing weed at the farm immediately, at least. <laughs> but yeah, there's place, there's spaces where, you know, that industry is going to need support to grow. And then, um, and yeah, and just always having conversations with uh, different folks about, um, it's more on the consulting side of things. So leveraging my expertise, my network, what I've learned along the way to, um, you know, uplift and, you know, assist other businesses and, you know, be a strategic partner. So yeah, that's what you can look out for. That's what I'm working on these days. And that's all very exciting stuff. Thank you, Doug. That's it for this week's episode of A Bright Idea. Tune in each week as we interview entrepreneurs to find out their aha moment that launched their businesses. Today's episode featured Doug Adams with New Brooklyn Farms. You can support his business by volunteering, growing your own food, or hosting an event on the farm. For more information, you can go to newbrooklynfarms.com. We're building a community of support here on A Bright Idea, so follow New Brooklyn Farms on Instagram, give them reviews, and tell all of your friends. Right. Where you was born? Carrie Key. Mm -hmm. I'm 86 years old. And what else you want to know? Uh, when's your birthday, Grandma? Where I work at? Where, what's your birthday? July the 19th, 1932. So what was it like living on the farm? It was beautiful. This episode was dedicated to my grandmother, Carrie Key, who was born on a farm in Seal, Alabama. During the Great Migration, she and her family moved to Cincinnati, Ohio, and settled in Detroit, Michigan, where she raised three boys. One of them was my dad. Though living in the city of Detroit was much different than growing up in rural Alabama, 
My grandmother always maintained a garden filled with fruits, vegetables, and nuts. She kept her green thumb until her final days on this earth. Today, the plants live in my apartment as a reminder that whatever you feed will grow. You can listen to A Bright Idea on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. I'm Amber Key. See you all next week.